Psalm 100 invites us to serve the Lord with gladness. And I'm curious, what I'd like to think about today is, what does it mean to serve the Lord? For Moses, serving the Lord meant obeying the summons of God issued through a burning bush. For Elijah, he was instructed to find a widow and to ask her to provide food for him, even though she barely had enough food for herself and her son. Elijah was serving and so was the widow. Paul tells us this in Ephesians 4, you've heard this many times. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Apparently, we are all called to serve God in some way, and one of the jobs of pastors and apostles and teachers is to train the people of God to work. But what happens if the people of God don't want to work? Or what happens if the people of God will not receive training? Or who decides who does what? Whose job is it to shuffle the deck and deal out the jobs so that everything that Christ calls the church to do gets done? There is a great little letter in the New Testament that talks about service and methods appropriate to calling the people of God into service. At some level, this subject comes up because here we are at the beginning of a new school year, offering new programs and new jobs in the church and we need folks to participate in leadership and in making these programs happen. But it's not just work inside the church that we're talking about today and it's important that you hear that. We can serve the God in lots of different settings, in lots of different places, and many of the jobs to which God calls us are outside the walls of the church, but there's still very much responsibilities to which God calls us. I wanna turn your attention to the book of Philemon this morning, shortest New Testament book, I think. It's got about two and a half verses, and um, we'll read some of that right now. Philemon near the end of the New Testament. Here's what it says. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to our beloved co-worker Philemon, to our sister Aphia, to our fellow soldier Archippus, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I mention you in my prayers because I hear of your love for all the saints and your faith toward the Lord Jesus. I pray that the partnership of your faith may become effective as you comprehend all the good that we share in Christ. I have indeed received much joy and encouragement from your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, my brother. 
First of all, notice, Paul speaks to those from who he is about to make a very significant request. And he does that with love and respect to these these individuals as if they were already family members. And they are. He's making this request inside the community of faith which is oriented towards the family. These folks are already partners. They already share common goals. These folks have already supported one another and demonstrated their willingness to help each other. That's important. That's how the fellowship of the church ought to work, right? We should already have a history, a track record of being able to call on one another. We should already have a history of being the types of folks who make it obvious to others that we are willing to be called on. Because that's what happens in families. You call on friends and you let the family members know that you're available to help them. And that's the kind of fellowship that exists that Paul is drawing on. So now comes the ask. And Paul starts by reminding them that he could command them, but he chooses not to do so. I don't think he's saying, hey, I could force you to do this because I have authority. Rather, he's saying, don't think of this as a command. But the thing he is going to ask, the thing that he underscores here, amounts to a request from Paul to them to do the right thing. Okay, so he's saying, here's my request. I'm not forcing you. Here's my request. Wink, wink. It is the right thing to do. But here's my request. So there's, he's, he's removing coercion from the equation. Reading on in verse eight. For this reason, though I am more than bold enough in Christ to command you to do the right thing, yet I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. And I, Paul, do this as an old man and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I am, appealing, I am appealing to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I have become during my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him, that is my own heart, back to you. I wanted to keep him with me so that he might minister to me in your place during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your good deed might be voluntary and not something forced. Perhaps this is the reason he was separated from you for a while, so that you might have him back for the long term, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So this is the request Paul makes. Onesimus, a slave, has been caring for Paul. How they got together, nobody knows for sure. But Paul is writing from prison. Were they at one point co-prisoners? We don't know. Is Onesimus a runaway slave? If so, 
He is now a converted slave. And when anyone enters the kingdom of God, their status changes immediately. We are all equal in the kingdom of God. We may play different roles, hold different responsibilities, have different gifts and abilities, but none is more important than any other. We are all simply brothers and sisters in Christ at the foot of the cross. And Onesimus now is a new man, and Paul is going to ask something very, very hard for everyone involved. This isn't an easy ask. This isn't a trivial thing. This isn't like, would you volunteer in the nursery for one Sunday a month? This is much, much, much more difficult, probably than anything we ask of anyone in the church. He's gonna ask a lot from his family. What's he asking? First of all, he's going to send Onesimus away from himself. Onesimus is caring for Paul in prison. It's not easy being in prison in Paul's day. There's no food service. Even if he's under house arrest, he must rely on others. And Paul is relying daily on Onesimus. Paul and Onesimus have become close. Paul doesn't want to lose critical support at a time when he is in great need. And don't forget how much more all of us help, all of us need help when we are old. Some of us, without mentioning any names, think they're old, but the rest of us know a little better. And the older we get, the more we need help. You know, we learn something significant about Paul right here, don't we? He will choose to do what he believes is right, even if it's inconvenient to him. And across this many years, across 2,000 years, we can't really even say how inconvenient it really was for Paul to send Onesimus away. But we know it was inconvenient because of what we know about prison in those days. And so at great personal sacrifice, Paul is doing the right thing. So Paul sends Onesimus back home. But Paul doesn't want to presume on the cooperation of Philemon, and there are obligations if Paul keeps Onesimus with him. Under the law at that time, if a slave ran away and somebody else harbored that slave, the person harboring the slave could be charged financially for the labor of that slave for the number of days that the slave was not with his master. So if the slave ran away and someone else kept him, that person at court could be liable to the original owner of the slave for the value of all the work lost. So Paul's in a tricky position now. If he keeps Onesimus with him, it's possible that Philemon could go to court and say, hey, you kept my slave for like 42 days and at six denarius a day, that means you really owe me X amount of shekels. That's the law of the day. So Paul is asking 
in addition to the other S for financial considerations. He doesn't want to be held responsible for what Philemon could technically charge him for. There's another thing that Paul is asking for that's difficult. Paul is asking Onesimus to return to his owner. Think about the difficulty of that ask. We're not sure what crime Onesimus may have committed before he gave his life to Christ. Onesimus doesn't have the right to expect mercy from Philemon. And yet Paul is asking Philemon to be merciful. In fact, he's asking Philemon to be way much more than merciful. And this is risky, this returning for Onesimus. For all we know, Onesimus may have been hiding in the big city to avoid being recaptured. Going home on his part is equivalent to turning himself in. That's a big ask on the part of Paul. The third thing that's really difficult is Paul's asking Philemon to forgive Onesimus. And more than just forgiving a slave, he's asking Philemon to overturn Onesimus' status as a slave and to receive him back as a brother rather than as a slave. Can you understand that the dynamics of this thing that Paul is asking to do is hard for everybody? It's very, very difficult. It's almost completely ununderstandable in terms of the culture that day. The idea of just freeing a slave because someone asked you to do it. The idea of making a slave a brother and treating them like a family member rather than a financial entry on a ledger sheet. So listen to Paul's words going forward in the letter. This is verse 17. So if you consider me your partner, welcome him, Onesimus, as you would welcome me. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. I say nothing about your owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, let me have this benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I am writing to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. This is the kind of correspondence that can turn the world upside down. Welcome the runaway slave in the same way that you would welcome me, the apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul says, the apostle to whom you own your very salvation. This letter reminds us all again, we're equal at the foot of the cross. You know, there's some suspicion that the reason this letter is preserved in scripture is because the bishop of Ephesus at the end of the first century is a guy named Onesimus. In describing him, the early church fathers make the same play on words that Paul makes in verse 11. In verse 11, Paul says, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is useful. And the, and the name Onesimus means useful one, 
And so there's a trick in what Paul is writing. And when the early church father writes about the Bishop of Ephesus, he uses the same trick, which makes us think this is probably the same guy. It seems that Onesimus goes from slave to brother to bishop, which is very interesting, isn't it? But there's one other important thing we learn from this letter. Paul has every right to command Philemon to forgive and release Onesimus, and yet he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. He offers suggestions. He gives reasons for his request. He even uses some gentle persuasion. But at the end of the matter, Philemon must make a decision. And that is ever how work in the church is supposed to be done. We invite, we explain, we might try some gentle persuasion, but in the end, we always allow folks the grace to make their own decisions because we want everyone to embrace their service of well, whatever we're asked to do as service of God because of their love for him. Not because of the love of their leaders or their pastors or their teachers, not because they think they must do what we ask in order to avoid social scrutiny or worse, not because we twist someone's arm or make them feel guilty. That's not how we operate within the church. This is what Colossians 3.17 says. Whatever you do, in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever, this is verse 23, whatever task you must do, work as if your soul depends on it, as for the Lord and not for humans, since you know that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as a reward. You serve the Lord Christ. As you think about all that, I would remind you of this one thing. There is a difference between optional and obligated. There's a difference between optional and obligated. It is true that the church should never force compliance. Okay, the church sometimes tries, but that method's always doomed to failure. It shouldn't happen. But even when no one coerces folks to serve, that doesn't remove obligations. Obligations are the appropriate, potentially expected actions based on the history, nature, and requirements of any relationship. As an example, you feed your child, you provide a room, clothes, education. You ask your child to do the dishes. Obligation expected, appropriate. It's appropriate to the nature of the relationship. It's appropriate to expect your kids to help with the dishes. And as they get older, the list grows, doesn't it? It ought to grow. Who's taking out the garbage if you have a 13-year-old? I hope it's the 13-year-old. I mean, the list of obligations grows as we mature. What is appropriate when it comes to our service 
for the one who has given us life, provided for our needs, demonstrated his love in the way that Christ has demonstrated love to us. This, this is the question we should be asking of ourselves. What are our obligations now that we have been invited, adopted into the family of God? What are our obligations to our Father, to our brothers and sisters in Christ? What are our obligations to our neighbors? I understand. We all don't serve in the same way. We've been given different gifts and abilities. We have different levels of availability. But in the same way that we are all equal at the foot of the cross, in the same way there's no difference between persons at the foot of the cross, there's also no difference in our obligations to Christ at the foot of the cross. He's given us everything. He is our creator. He is the one who is resurrecting us and making us alive in Christ by the presence of his spirit in us. And if we are all equal at the foot of the cross, we all share the same level of obligation at the foot of the cross. Sometimes, caught up in the necessary chaos of life, we forget our obligations. We forget obligations to our family members. We forget obligations to our relatives. We forget our obligations to our neighbors. We forget our obligations to Christ. And this morning, I would just ask a simple thing of you. Would you ask the Holy Spirit to remind you of your obligations? Would you ask the Holy Spirit to remind you of your obligations? The fulfillment of obligations brings meaning to life. They underscore our purpose. They keep us moving forward in tough times. Obligation shouldn't be a drudgery for us. Obligations mean we are blessed to be in rich relationship with one another. And it's those relationships that give meaning and purpose and, and direction in life. If you don't have any obligations, it means you're not strongly enough connected to anybody to make a difference in the world. That your life essentially amounts to nothing. Because the richness of our lives, the meaning of our lives, is all tied up in those obligations. Because obligations stem from relationships. And it's relationships that make life rich. Obligations are a blessing, not a curse. They are useful if we will allow them to be. And so I ask you this morning, would you ask the Holy Spirit to remind you of your obligations so that you can know the richness of the relationships in which you live? Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, We are grateful for your graciousness in dealing with us. We are grateful for your patience in dealing with us. We are grateful for the gifts and abilities you've given us and for the rich relationships in which you've placed us. Thank you for those relationships. Thank you for the blessings that come through relationships. And help us now, Lord, as we think about what those relationships bring to us, 
to be the kinds of brothers and sisters in Christ that will embrace the obligations that relationships bring, that in all of our actions, we may bring glory to you. For that is our strong desire. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like to invite you to join me in a song. If it's a song you've not heard before, you can find the words on page 711 in your hymnal. Uh, it's just a simple chorus like this, but it, I think it reminds us of our relationship to Christ. Your love compels me. Sing it with me. Your love compels me, Lord, to give as you would give, to speak as you would speak, to live as you would live. Your love compels me, Lord, to see as you would see, to serve as you would serve, to be what you would be. Let's stand and sing one more time. Your love compels me, Lord, to give as you would give, to speak as you would speak, to live as you would live. Your love compels me, Lord, Spirit, would you remind us of our obligations? And now may the Lord Christ Jesus give you all that you need to serve him. And may the Holy Spirit direct you into the paths he has preordained for you, that you may glorify God now and always. Amen.